Hi, this is Pastor John. Welcome to the Consumed Church Weekly Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message, Shouts of Grace, from July 11th, 2021. For any further information about this message or the ministries of Consumed Church, you can check us out at theconsumedchurch.com. so good to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, I am looking forward to this next week. I'm very excited about it. Uh, I really feel like, I, I don't feel like, I know that God has an assignment on this church for us to be a house of equipping and for us to be a house where we equip and develop people according to the fivefold ministry, that there would always be a reflection of the fivefold ministry in everything we do so that we would taste that way. And many of you have heard us talk about this a lot, but when we started doing assessments, uh, we realized that, you know, today there's a lot of weight on the prophetic and there's a lot of, a lot of people that, that may have some apostolic and a lot of pastoral, a lot of teaching. The evangelist, that gift is, is one that we don't see a whole lot. So, I mean, Kevin and Debbie, we welcome you with open arms. I've got I've to say before everybody that I was aware of the deficiency in the body of Christ, specifically in our house, uh, of evangelist, of, of that gift and that call. And I was praying, Lord, would you please send us an evangelist to, to do just what he said he's about to do, okay? That he is going to impart that gift and that anointing to us. And I love it that he said it's not about knocking on doors and necessarily going out in the street, but it's about sharing Christ inside of you. It's about winning souls. And uh, I had the opportunity to eat uh, breakfast, coffee, whatever we did. I think it was coffee. Uh, it was like a four-hour coffee date. And um, I'm telling you, it got all over me. And we were both in tears for the loss before it was over. It was just a beautiful thing. You know, and Paul told Timothy, hey, you're an apostle, right? You're, you're uh, a leader of the church. He said, but do the work of an evangelist. And so I believe that that word applies to all of us, that we can do the work of an evangelist. Even if you don't have the DNA, if that's not your particular gifting, you know, like Kevin had said, that we're all called to share our faith. That's part of knowing how you're saved. You know that? That's an assurance of salvation is that you can't keep it under a basket, right? City on a hill can't be hidden. So anyways, I'm looking forward to it. You don't want to miss it. That's next weekend. So this coming up Saturday, 9.30 in the morning, coffee and, and bagels, and then 10 a.m., and then Kevin will share uh, here from the pulpit next Sunday morning. Hallelujah. So I feel like as we get ready for that, uh, I've, the word that I've got today is uh, titled Shouts of Grace. And I felt like the Lord started sharing, uh, stirring this word in me months and months ago. And um, it, it goes hand in hand, but it's almost like the plow that comes before uh, evangelism, before we go out. Uh, this, is a, this is a word that has to do with what God is up to on the inside and how we, much in our, like in our worship this morning, make room for him to, to come on in and stay a while. Do you realize that you are the temple of the Lord? That the temple of the Lord dwells in here? That the place where God inhabits and dwells here on earth is actually, he's chosen to be inside of us. 
And yeah, we love this house. Thank God for this house. We, well, there's a very important reason why we have a building to meet in. Because as we come together, we are being built into the dwelling place of God. And uh, I'm going to start with that scripture from Ephesians chapter 2. Does everybody have your Bibles? They're going to have a little bit of a sword drill today. The title is Shouts of Grace. And you say, well, what's that? Well, that's uh, about the story about Zerubbabel. Everybody say Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Doesn't exactly just roll off the tongue. Uh, Does anybody know who Zerubbabel is? Raise a hand if you know who that who that person is. Okay, a couple people know. I love that. That's great because uh, Zerubbabel never gets talked about, and I felt like the Lord said that we are in a Zerubbabel season. As a matter of fact, I felt like the Lord told me you're Zerubbabel. Like you know, you've heard people say, "Well, the Lord gave me a new name." (laughs) I felt like He called me a Zerubbabel. And uh, even, even more so, Zerubbabel had a Babylonian name, and, and I'll share that later. But I think it's because Zerubbabel was called and appointed to the task of rebuilding the temple, the place where God's presence was to dwell. So he built the second temple. But I want to do, look at it from a New Testament perspective. So if you have your Bibles, open to Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. Paul says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Special attention to this last verse 22. In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Do you realize that you're being built together as a dwelling place of God in the Spirit? So as we look at things in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, as we look at things that pertain to the temple, keep in mind the New Testament reality that you are being built up into the dwelling place. We together collectively are the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So there's this period of time, and uh, forgive me if I nerd out a little bit on on Bible uh, statistics and and that sort of thing. Uh, The the teacher in me loves to just teach the Bible. But there's a period of time uh, where four books of the Bible, Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah, all apply to this, uh, even Malachi, it was right before uh, the, the Lord stopped talking. But it's the second temple period. And this is, so this would be post-exile in Babylon. Does everybody know about what's going on there with the exile in Babylon? Some people call this period the second exodus, where the children of Israel were then brought back from exile out of Babylon. And yet it was a remnant it wasn't everybody, it was, it was a select group. But the first ones to go back uh, were led by a guy named Zerubbabel. And that's a funny name. And he is in the same time frame as Nehemiah. So how many of you have heard lots of sermons about Nehemiah? Anybody? Yeah, Nehemiah, and he's rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. He hangs the, the gates and all of that. And in the meantime, he's got, a, he's got a shovel in one hand and a sword in the other, and they're fighting off the enemy. 
All right, well, there's a very similar story that historically pre- uh, precedes that story, and it's about Zerubbabel. But Zerubbabel goes with, so he, here he is, Zerubbabel is a, he's actually a descendant of royalty. He's a descendant of Solomon. If you look, uh, you can see his name maybe once or twice in the New Testament, only in the genealogy of who Jesus is. So he's in the royal bloodline. He's a descendant of David, so he's got the blood of kings in him, but he's not like the firstborn. So he would be somebody, but yet he had a nickname. I shouldn't say nickname. His name in Babylon, the Babylonian people gave him the name Sheshbazar. Sheshbazar means worshiper of fire. This guy had a reputation of having a fiery relationship with Jehovah, with Yahweh, so that it was only appropriate that he had what it took, that he was chosen to be the one to go and rebuild the temple, okay? Because Cyrus, God raised up a king named Cyrus. After Babylon fell, he brought in the Persians, the Medes and the Persians. And do you realize that Cyrus was prophesied in great detail, his name and everything that he did, like 200 years before he was born? That that's how specific the plan and the detail of the Lord and his plan of salvation, his heart for his children. Before they were ever carried away into, into exile and captivity, that he had already had a plan for their deliverance. How many of you heard stories about Cyrus? Because Cyrus is a little more well-known than Nehemiah. So Cyrus was the, the emperor, so to speak, the, the king of kings, they called him. He was, he was ruled over the, the Persian Empire. And immediately, I think in Ezra, so remember, this period of time is Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, which is a pro- prophet, and Zechariah. So it starts with uh, Ezra, the book of Ezra. As a matter of fact, Ezra and Nehemiah in the Latin Bible is Ezra 1 and Ezra 2. They were one book at one time. Uh, but it starts out that in the, in the first year of King Cyrus, to fulfill the word of the Lord, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, of Jeremiah, that he actually stood up, King Cyrus, and he declared that the God of the Jews needs to be worshipped because God had already proven himself to the other emperors like Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. You know, he's the guy with the hand on the wall. And so emperors, people that were in, in, um, in that high authority, the Lord had placed them. He used them to bring about his kingdom on earth. But when they would exalt themselves, bam, down they'd go. And then he would uh, show off, mostly through people like Daniel and some of the other prophets. But so that those that were in the ultimate highest authority on earth actually realized that this God needs to be worshipped, and he needs to be worshipped the way that he says he's supposed to be worshipped. And so he had value. He placed high value on the prophetic words. I mean, his whole entire life was walked out of a prophetic word from Isaiah and Jeremiah. And here he is, the, the king of kings, the, the ruler of the, of the whole entire world. And he says, hey, it's time. And he chooses Zerubbabel to go and rebuild the temple because it, it mattered. And he said, and as a matter of fact, I'm going to send you with all the stuff that Nebuchadnezzar stole out of the temple. So we're going to get this right. 
I want you to worship God the way that God has declared that he's supposed to be worshipped because he's the great king above all. And I think he said something at the end like, so that you'll pray for me and my kids (laughs) so that our life will go good. He know full. So I think that it's important to take a little study right now and look at the life of Zerubbabel and the experience of Zerubbabel and his story because I felt like the Lord told me that we're like, slam up in the middle of a a Zerubbabel kind of a season. And I know that Zerubbabel is a type of Christ, and he's also a type of the church, and and that's kind of an overarching thing that always applies, but I feel like it really applies right now, and there's some things that we can take out of that. I believe that God has called us to restore ruined cities, but before we can rebuild the ruined cities like Nehemiah did with Jerusalem, the temple has to be built. The temple has to be rebuilt. And I feel like there are some of us, wherever you're at in life, some of, some of you are, are probably doing great on this. But even if you're doing good, there is no doubt that you have taken assault against your temple, against that, that place that is sacred to you, against this continuing work of building up uh, the temple and the Lord, this us coming together as a church. I mean, it's no... It's no surprise or no uh, secret that the church globally uh, has been under, uh, what's the right word, pressure, distress, and I just feel like the Lord wants to minister to that place of distress, and before we go out and start sharing our faith, the Lord wants to relight that fire. He wants to help us actually make more room and more space on the inside, that it is more important to rebuild the temple first before we start putting the city together. Amen? All right, so this is what happens in history. I love how the Lord does that, uh, and things seem to be cyclical. But So who is Zerubbabel? Well, he was a builder. We do a lot of talking about the apostolic here, and uh, we feel like when we say we're we're shifting from a pastoral form of church to an apostolic form of church, we're talking about uh, being builders and, and building the house of God. What are we talking about? Okay, um, Zerubbabel, I like to see him as an apostle. And I say that because, and he comes with Joshua, a priest. And now we've been called kings and priests to our God, right? A holy nation, a royal priesthood. That's in Second uh, uh, Peter, I believe, or maybe it's First Peter chapter two. Anyways, but Peter, in the context of that, he's talking about building up a house, building up the house of God, and so we're all like on assignment in life. Do you believe that? Because if you're not on assignment, be looking for it. The Lord has an assignment He wants to give you. But that's what it means to be an apostle or to be apostolic. Uh, I, I don't really like throwing the word apostle around very easy because, or very lightly. I, I think uh, in our training and our teaching, we try to use the word builder rather than apostle because people have done weird things with the word apostle. Sometimes we can do weird things with the word prophet or even pastor. So we're trying to kind of steer away from titles and more talk about 
the gift and the anointing of these different areas in the fivefold and how they're present in our lives but present in the church and placing the proper value on it and actually stewarding that to make sure that it's in the, in the life of our church. But an apostle, I see Zerubbabel as apostolic because what apostle means sent one. Has anybody ever heard that before? That the word apostolos means sent one? Well, it's more than just a sent one. It's like sent forth with orders, sent forth with papers for specific purpose. So as we focus on that, keep that in mind. I want to read Zechariah chapter 4, and this is where the, the shouts of grace word comes from. Has anybody ever heard that before, speak to the mountain with shouts of grace, grace to it? It's a little bit obscure, but it's, it's more widely known. We've heard this in church before. Uh, Zechariah 4, 6, and 7 says, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. And that's after the prophet sees a vision and he says, What am I looking at? And he says, You're looking at the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. And I don't have time for that, but <laughs> something about olive trees and lampstands. Not by power, or not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Now that should trigger off this idea of speaking to a mountain. Some memory of Jesus saying, if you have the faith of a mustard seed... You could speak to this mountain and say, be removed and cast into the sea. The faith. Now, y'all realize that we're saved by grace through faith. We're saved by grace through faith. It takes both. And I'll get back to that. But what are mountains? What did Jesus mean? And what is Zerubbabel? What is uh, the angel of the Lord saying to Zechariah about shout to this mountain with shouts of grace? So mountains are larger-than-life obstacles that get in the way of a destination. Has anybody got mountains in their life? Boy, mountains could, mountains could almost be anything. But especially your God-given destination. If God has sent you on assignment, which I believe that we're all on assignment in one way or another, whether we have defined that assignment or whether it's lingering back there somewhere, God has a purpose for your life. God always has a purpose for your life. But, man, I tell you what, mountains seem to get in the way. Has anybody ever been to the mountains? Anybody like going to the mountains? I love going to the mountains. Anybody ever go hiking? You know, if you were to draw a line linearly from one place to another, like you were trying to go and there's a mountain in the way, instead of, you know, taking 10 minutes to walk there, it could take, you know, all day. All day. And, you know, there's stuff in our lives. There's stuff. There's mountains. There are obstacles that get in our way from following the call of God on our life. And so these are the kind of things that we're talking about. You know, I've I, uh, been working on cars forever. And I got paid according to uh, each uh, particular, what's the word? Each particular thing that I did on the car. I got paid commission. So, like if it was a fender, you'd get paid uh, 
0.8 of an hour to, to remove a fender and put it back on. So you get the whole job, and I've got to fix the whole front end of the car and say there's 15 hours there. Well, okay, so I'd have, talk about a mountain. This is just an easy example of a mountain. But in my assignment to get this car done and to get it done in a, a decent amount of time, I would have occasionally something where you'd have one bolt. Everything's put together. You're sliding the bumper on, you put a bolt in and the bolt snaps off inside of the bumper bracket. And there's no access to the place where that is. And it takes like five or six hours to do something that should have taken like 30 seconds or less, five seconds. I would consider that a mountain. And I, and I think that there's another story about a mountain in my life. My mother died last year, and she was full-time caretaker of... Uh, my brother, who is who is handicapped, uh, mentally ill, and he's got he's got some issues. He's really doing good, but he's got some issues. And we took him into our house, so I inherited uh, the, the the care of my brother. And he's he's a dear, sweet guy. He's just got a disease, and you know, I I didn't know if I could do it. Like at first, I thought, okay, I'm getting this. I'm getting this. I'm getting this. And we got COVID last year. And while we had COVID trying to care for somebody like that, like, uh, you know, two months into his arrival, uh, was really difficult. And he had some issues, um, with the bathroom and stuff. And so we had, I just thought it would never end. And I would have to call the plumber and I went and bought a snake and I, uh, excuse, forgive me if this is too graphic, but I mean, it was like, it, to me, it was a mountain, and I, I remember just being like, Lord, I really don't know if I can do this. I don't know that I can make this. And uh, after resetting a toilet like nine times, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. Of course, he did early, and I, uh, that there's a crack in the bottom of that new toilet. So that would be a manufacturer defect. What are the odds of that? What are the odds of that? Well... Uh, not very good. And so I talked to like plumbers. I mean, the plumber was out there and they rate set the toilet four times and they didn't catch it. And one of my friends that's uh, been in construction forever, he came over and helped the second time. And he was the one who said, there's no way that that thing has a crack in it. He came over the second time and I wasn't strong enough because of getting over COVID. I wasn't strong enough to lift it. But I said, lift that thing up and let me see the bottom. And sure enough, there was a crack right in the part, the porcelain part where the water drains. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what are the odds? But see, we have an adversary that comes against us that can push your buttons and knows just how to nag away at you until you just feel like you can't go any further. But I'm telling you that that's a mountain. Once I got over that, it was like smooth sailing. Once we got the toilet working right and everything was fine, it's like, man, something as simple as a crack in a brand-new product that shouldn't be there. Can, it can cause all these problems. I feel like what I'm getting at here is that we have been in a season where our planet and our communities have been under distress, great distress, great distress. And we say good things about praise the Lord, hallelujah, we're going to keep going on. We've got perseverance, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, all that. But I don't know if you realize it or not, but it's just been wearing you down. It's just been wearing you down. And I, and I feel like the Lord is coming with a fresh new wind to wash away all that stuff, to, to remove the mountains in our life and to cause the valleys to rise up, to be a flat level plain where walking will be easy, where you can go, when God says, I need you to go here, it'll be like, no problem. 
Y'all believe that? Hallelujah. Okay, so we're going to look at the life and the story of Zerubbabel and get some, uh, some tips and, and maybe some insight into uh, how this works. So Zerubbabel and Joshua, they're, they're like, a, like a team. Joshua is the high priest, and Zerubbabel is, the, we call him a governor, but he, he's, he's functioning like a king or, or, like I said, an apostle. But he's the builder. And uh, if you go through the book of Ezra... Uh, they had some mountains that are both, they were both very difficult, hard and adversarial. Everybody say adversarial. Adversarial. So I want to look at what, what happened with them. So the story goes along through Ezra. It's really cool. They, they, they get appointed. Uh, king Cyrus sets them up with, with money and everything and the, the blessing of the king and the, the papers. Here, it is let it be written, let it be done that you're going to go rebuild the temple and they get all of their relatives and everybody that says they want to go and all of the money and all of the herds and all the stuff to do it, and they're excited. The very first thing that they do is they get there and they set up an altar. Okay, so Ezra, and this, this is like Ezra chapter 3, verse 3, if you're there. Open your, open your Bibles to Ezra if you're not already there. And in Ezra 3, 3, it says, they had set up the altar... And began to do sacrifices, but fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries. Do you realize that our number one mountain is the fear of man? That is our number one mountain. That is the number one thing that stops us is fear. And the adversary, do you realize that Satan, uh, his name actually means when you look up Satan or whatever, in the Greek, it means adversary. He's so predictable. He doesn't have any new tools. He may put a new spin on it. But I want to look at, not that I like looking at him a whole lot because he's pretty ugly, but I want to look at some of the tricks that he pulled in this time. Y'all remember, it's easy to remember Hezekiah, or not Hezekiah, Nehemiah. Talk about Sanballat and those guys that gave... Nehemiah a hard time when he was trying to rebuild the wall. Well, guess what? Similar kind of thing happened with Zerubbabel as he's building the temple. But fear of man comes against us to frustrate our purpose. Y'all say, frustrate my purpose. It comes in the form of cultural pressure and identity assault. Cultural pressure and identity assault. So, He's always trying to frustrate your purpose. He's trying to stop you from doing what God's created you to do. And he does it through cultural pressure, which is this is fear of man, and assaulting your identity. Does that sound familiar? You think any of what we've experienced as a church globally looks like that? So here's, here's what he comes. He comes with temptation to compromise. That's the first thing. We're going to read it in just a minute in chapter 4 of Ezra. But... He comes with the fear of man, but he comes to tempt you to compromise. He comes with discouragement, harassment, frustration of purpose, and accusation. Basically, character, identity, slander. And that's in Ezra uh, 4, 2 through 6. So I want to look at the first one, temptation to compromise. Uh, chapter 4, verse 2 says, They came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, 
Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, and we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. And if you read a little bit further, they say, no thanks, we're not going to have any of your help, but only, only us. We're going to build this thing with God, so no thank you, get out of here. Now, well, that sounds kind of contrary to what we're seeing in the world today. If you had any idea how many people come to me and give me advice about what I ought to be doing in, in, in uh, leading a church, it would make your head spin. <laughs> and I try to take that with a grain of salt, and that's not the same thing as, as what we're talking about here. But this is something that I see in the church right now, not our church, but just in the church at large, uh, that, is, that is dangerous. And it's a, it's, in the New Testament, Paul says, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have friends that aren't believers. We have friends. But to actually take their culture and the things that they value and try to put them together with what God says the way that we're to live and with our value system, that can't be done. So let me tell you just a little bit about what these people of those countries are talking about. Because there's all this chatter about uh, the other side of the river or whatever. So if you'll remember... And maybe you don't know this, but uh, after Solomon and Solomon fell, the, the dynasty split. Like, I don't know if it was one or two generations later, but the dynasty split into the North Kingdom and the South Kingdom. And the Lord had said that Jerusalem, the house of the Lord, was to be built in Jerusalem. That's the city of the great king. And that's where the temple is. And so he had said, this is how you worship me. This is where... David had made, Solomon had actually made the house, but David had it in his heart to make a house for the Lord. But it was supposed to be in Jerusalem. Well, when the kingdom split and Israel was no longer uh, Israel one kingdom, it was Israel the north and Judah in the south. And Judah and Benjamin, those two tribes uh, were in the south, and they had Jerusalem. And they mostly stayed, if you read through the books of the kings, in Chronicles, there's this story after story of this king rose up and he was a good king and this one rose up and was a bad king. You see this back and forth, back and forth until they're led into exile. God didn't try to punish them necessarily with exile. It's just that he always said, keep yourself away from the gods of these other nations because they're basically uh, demonic beings that have your demise in, in heart. That's what they're trying to do for you. So you can't mix with those other people, like marry their wives and have your, uh, um, marry their women and have your mixture because they will cause you to worship their gods. It wasn't about like trying to be uh, exclusive for the sake of we're better than you or whatever. It was a, a pollution. And so there's still a remnant of that today in the earth that God has set up holy standards that we're to walk by and live by, and it's not to reject people, but to invite them in to see them receive salvation. But yet, if as a church, we actually embrace patterns of thought and worldview that mixes with the gospel and turns it into something else, this is, this is, a, this is a problem. This is, this is a, a potential mountain. Now, these guys don't fall for it. But what he was talking about, Ezra had, and we, yeah, we used to worship your God. We want to come and help you and worship your God with you. Well, what had happened was Assyria was uh, a, a great empire before Babylon and before 
Persia took over Babylon. Assyria was in the north. And Israel, their capital was Samaria, where Judah's capital was Jerusalem. And they didn't want to go to Jerusalem to worship. Instead, they designed and made their own altars and their own places to worship because they mixed. They would mix not just, they wouldn't just worship Jehovah. They would worship the Baals and all these other gods, right? Because of their, the the Bible calls it their harlotry, because they've mixed and served these other gods, that always brings us into bondage because it's not God going, I'm going to put you in bondage. No, we, people decide to embrace that stuff, which is of itself bondage. God doesn't do that. God is, if you really understand the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament, that he was still loving and that his love would endure forever. And all you have to do is call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved like I want to save you. That's the heart of the Lord throughout the whole entire Old Testament. But it reads a little different. It reads and makes him sound like he's angry and he's punishing people. But basically, he just would remove his hand and say, you want to worship that? I don't mix with that. I'm holy. I'm separate. That's what holy means. Separate, set apart. And so it would always lead them into bondage. Okay, I said all that to say, and you've probably heard me say that before. I said all that to say that the, the king of Assyria snatched up all the people of Israel. It's like First Chronicles 23 or somewhere like that. He snatched them all up and he took them away into bondage, into Assyria, took them to the north. And then he sent a bunch of Assyrian people that worshipped all kinds of weird gods down into the land of Israel that butted right up to Judah. Okay, so when he says, well, we worshipped in the days of King Esserdin, we worshipped too. Well, basically what had happened when they got there and were worshipping their gods, lions were eating everybody. Y'all ever see that movie, Lion in the Darkness? There, there was a movie, Lion in the Darkness, where it was in South Africa, and, and these lions were like, Stalking people and eating them. Anyways, that's a bunny trail. That's what was going on, right? So uh, they were there, but they were worshiping their gods in the Holy Land, and the, uh, and the land itself will spit you out, the Lord says, when you do this thing. So the, the, the beasts of the land were just eating everybody. And they, and they went back to the king of Assyria, and the king of Assyria said, okay, we got it. We get that. You've got, there's a god in that land that owns that property that needs to be appeased, so worship that God too. And they took somebody that was a priest from Samaria uh, that knew the law of God and sent him down there and taught him the things of God. And so they were mixed, though. They would worship the God, but it stopped the lions. That was enough to get the lions to stop eating everybody. So when they came to Zerubbabel and said, hey, let us help you, it says that they had evil in their heart, though. They weren't really trying to help. They didn't want to see Jerusalem rebuilt. They didn't want to see the temple rebuilt because they were threatened by it. They wanted to uh, continue to control that area. Oh, all right, is everybody still with me? I'm, I'm just nerding out on, on facts and details here. But, huh. but this, is what, this is what the world tries to do. It tries to treaty with us. Y'all ever had that happen? To, to just get you to, it's like a temptation to compromise, you know. Did God really say you got to do it like that? Don't you know that you're, it's all about love. If you just love everybody, it's going to be okay. There's really not any standards that we have to put in place. Don't give us standards. The world doesn't like standards today. But you know that the love of God is so fierce that he's got some standards. 
if you want his presence. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about having him dwell inside of us because he's building us up into a temple, into this fiery place where the fire of God burns on the inside of us. That's what's contagious. So if we go out and we try to rebuild these cities, if we're not on fire, it's not going to work very well. I mean, who wants to sign up for something that's boring or mixed or just looks like everybody else? It tries to treaty with you. This spirit wants to you to compromise. It wants to, to form a treaty. But it really is trying to stop you, to dominate you, to rule over you. And the rationale that is tempting is, if I play nice, it won't hurt me. I'm calling it out. It's the fear of man. It's the fear of man. And we have to be more committed to what God is doing in our lives than to stuff that looks like something else. I got so much to say, I'm not sure how to say it all. <laughs> uh, y'all ever remember that movie, Saving Private Ryan? Did anybody see that movie? Some of, some of us that are a little bit older have seen it. it. It's a classic. It's really brutal and hard to watch, especially like the, the first scene is, is gory. Um, but there was a scene in Saving Private Ryan that always stood out to me. And I felt like, and I've tried to preach it before. I've used it as an um, example in sermons before. But there's a guy that, uh, I'm trying to remember, is he a medic or he's a photographer or something? But he's with the platoon that's going uh, to go save this Private Ryan. But he's not really so much a soldier. He's more of a coward. And there's an enemy soldier that he encounters that he has the opportunity to shoot and he's like, no, I'm on your side. Let's be buddies. I'm just a human like you. And he lets this guy live. And then the, the story kind of culminates with this battle that's going down in this city where they have to hold this city till reinforcements show up. And his platoon is depleted. They've already lost some men. But they're making this last great stand on this bridge so that the Germans can't come across the bridge and get to the next town. to So this is pivotal that... They thought they were just rescuing a guy, but they actually wound up being uh, the last stand against uh, this, this front, this invasion. And the coward is there, and he's supposed to be running bullets up to the, the guys in the tower that are up there uh, sniping and picking off the, the soldiers coming in. And he lets the, the, the guy that he let go free, that he thought was his buddy or is his pal, runs up into the tower and kills his platoon kills his members up there and he comes back down and he's like oh hey you're the guy that made me live and he's so riddled with fear the guy's just like shh and there's this sickening feeling that comes over you that that's like really a graphic metaphor for like when there's stuff that we're supposed to deal with and we don't deal with it we make friends with it instead that it actually takes out the whole platoon That there are some absolutes, there are some hard lines that we draw when we're worshiping the Lord not to let stuff in here that's not supposed to be in here because that's what we're talking about. I'm not talking about killing people here and I'm certainly not talking about pushing people out. But there's a certain space in here that is sacred, that, that God and God alone dwells and he has a way that he is and you're not going to, this isn't paper, but you won't find out any other way than reading this book. 
and he'll reveal his nature and who he is to you. And that's the God that we worship and that's the God that we serve. And so when other things come in that are foreign, we can have our defenses up and either go, what? not people, but spirits say, mm, no, not having it. All right, when that doesn't work, because that's kind of the first thing that the enemy does, tempt us to fear, tempt us to compromise. Another work of fear, the second thing that he does is, whoops, through discouragement and harassment. Discouragement through harassment. Does anybody ever get that way where you're just like, man, I just feel harassed like this thing's popped up and this thing's popped up. And the the point of that is, the, the, the objective from the enemy is to discourage you, just to get you like, I'm just ready to give up. Does anybody ever feel like giving up? Like, Lord, I, I love you and I want to serve you, but this is tough. I'm discouraged. Verse 4, Ezra 4, verse 4. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them. I'm going to call that harassment. They troubled them in building. Do you realize that as we're building this space for God to dwell, this holy temple on the inside, that there are irritating things that the enemy picks and decides to throw your way just to harass you, to stop the building. He doesn't want God to dwell here because God wants to dwell with his people. He wants to be present with us. And the enemy gets displaced because he's called the God of this world. But Jesus has already defeated him on the cross. And taken all power from him. So now it's all about how we make decisions. What we prioritize. And we have this glorious opportunity of rebuilding the temple. Hallelujah. Number three, frustrating your purpose through identity assault. Verse five. Ezra four, verse five. And they hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. Verse 6 says, in the reign of Ahasuerus, I can't really pronounce that right, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, this is a marvelous thing that you have the word of a king, you have the blessing of the king, the favor of the king, the money of the king, the, the edict of the king to go and to build the temple. And yet you still got people that are over there writing their own edict and trying to turn it back to the authorities and say, hey, this person over here, if you'll go and look in the records, if we were to keep reading this story, they say, look, you go look in the records. I think he says this to Darius because... Um, King Cyrus wasn't going, to be, wasn't going to be fooled by that. But he says, if you go look in the records, this city has a history of insurrection and rebellion. And if you let them build this city back up, they'll rebel and they'll keep the, the king from getting his taxes. This is a rebellious city. Do you see what's going on here? Identity assault. That the enemy always wants to, to identify you by the you that was rebellious to God, by the you pre-Jesus. He's always bringing up your past. And that is, a, that is a temptation to agree with him. Just don't agree with him. And yet, you know, you get to Haggai. You get to Haggai chapter 1, and it sounds like they're being rebuked. 
because what happens is they get so harassed by that that Darius says, yep, yeah, okay, let's halt construction until we can find the records. And as soon as those people that were opposing them heard that word, they went straight to Jerusalem with swords and said, here, we got a letter saying that you have to stop. And they stopped. For 14 years they stopped. They just went about living in Jerusalem. See, the enemy's fine with you being in the area. He's fine with you being in the area as long as you don't accomplish what mission you're set out to do. Frustrating your purpose. If And there's no deeper way, he always does it this way, than to assault your identity, your character by reminding you of who you used to be. You're not that person anymore. Can I hear an amen? I am not who I used to be. That old man died with Christ, amen? And I've been risen to new life. I have here in my notes the part about the apostle, but that to be sent with orders is to live a life of purpose. I can only succeed in what God has sent or asked me to do. I'm only responsible for what God has asked me to do. Now, when I say that, don't check the box and say, oh, I can do whatever because I got a word from somebody one day or something like that. Obviously, we we are responsible to Jesus to do the things that he asked us to do, to love one another, those sorts of things. But I'm talking about your purpose, your plan, the, the plan of God for your life, your calling, your dream, your destiny. We talk about this stuff a lot. And like I said, you'd, be, you'd make your head spin if you knew how many people uh, I run into that have opinions about what I should be doing in leading a church. <laughs> it's fun, but you probably get the same thing, right? You probably get advice about what you're supposed to be doing as you're following your call with the Lord. That calling, that that calling is wrapped up in who you are, in your identity. We do a lot of studies about this to, to discover that the the once you've been redeemed, that you have the the um, your mind has been changed. That the desires that God puts in your heart at that point. That's actually part of your calling, your destiny. It's who you are. That's your identity. That's why your purpose is slammed with slander against your identity. Does this make sense? We talk about identity a lot. We have to understand that we're sons. When we understand how good our father is, we don't live like orphans anymore. God is just so good. He's just such a loving father. He's better. He's better than anyone ever told me. He's better than, than anyone ever told me. Had I known that he was that good, I would have repented a long time before I did. I had no idea he was that good. Man. And I'm so thankful for salvation. I'm thankful that we're in the kingdom, but once you get saved, once you come into new life, there's life to be had. There's purpose and destiny for you. 
14 years of, of the foundation being laid. They got the foundation laid, and then the building stopped. How many of us does that happen to, that, that we receive the Lord, the Lord sets the foundation, and then we just go about doing what, whatever? And, you know, we're not really experiencing a whole lot of, of uh, resistance when we're doing it that way. Do you realize that if you're experiencing resistance in the spirit, it's because the enemy's trying to stop you from your purpose? All right. I think I beat that up pretty good. So getting back on track, how do we get back on track? Let's just say that our purpose has just stopped. It's stopped. And Haggai, chapter 1, it sounds like he's kind of chewing them out in a, in Recently, when I read that, you know, I hadn't read that in a long time, I thought, Lord, why, why are you having the prophet chew the guys out? I mean, they, they were stopped because of the, the word of the king said to stop, and they were stopped with, with swords. And yet the word of the Lord has given them a hard time over, you shouldn't have stopped. We need the prophetic. Ezra 5, 1 and 2, Zerubbabel and Joshua were helped by the prophets through their prophesying. But we need the prophetic to get back on track, to see what's going on in heaven, to see what's going on in our own lives and, and in our purpose. So Ezra 5, 1 says, Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, Prophets prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, which is also Joshua, son of Jehozadak, Jehozadak, rose up and began to build the house of God which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. Now, I believe that they started doing that before they had papers. But guess what? They didn't need more papers. You don't need... More instruction. What did God say to you in the beginning? What you need is you need a word from the Lord to get you moving again. You need to hear God encouraging you and also uncovering stuff. We need both spiritual insight and encouragement. So to see what's going on in heaven, Zechariah chapter 3. So we're moving from Ezra to Zechariah. Zechariah and Haggai were the two prophets that were helping him. Keep that in mind. I'm not going to read much from Haggai, but Haggai seemed like he was given a little bit of a, a stern word. But in Zechariah chapter 3, 1 through 4, Zechariah gets a vision of what's going on in heaven. Then he showed me, so an angel comes to him. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan the adversary, standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And he's talking about Joshua being a brand plucked from the fire. Is this not one that God has rescued? Is this not one that God has chosen to forgive his sins? And is this not one that God has poured out his uh, his blessing and his favor on. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, take away the filthy garments from him. 
And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. Ha. Salvation, redemption, reconciliation with God. It's a type of Christ going on even before Christ is born. So we need that. We need the prophetic word. We need a word to see what's going on in heaven. I love that, that he's actually got the adversary standing right there before him. You you know, some of you have probably heard some of the teaching about the courts of heaven. Anybody heard that? Courts of heaven. I may get into some more of that in a future date because I I think that's such a real deal that there's so much going on in the heavenly realms that that's where the warfare and that's where the battle and that's where our problem is. Often we get into stuff in life and we're just like, there's a wall, there's a wall, there's a wall. We just keep banging on this mountain, so to speak, and we don't actually get God's heaven's perspective. We need to see what's going on there because it opens our eyes to go, whoa, okay. And there the Lord is, our advocate, Jesus Christ, declaring us righteous that I've taken away your iniquity and clothed you with rich robes. You can. That's what it means to be saved by grace through faith is that if the pronouncement that was written, the handwriting that was written against us is removed, then we're actually empowered through the Spirit of God to accomplish what he's called us to accomplish. I'm going to bring that back up in a minute. But but we need to see how that is affecting us because sometimes we don't realize that some of the doldrums that we get in is a direct result of that. And Haggai 1, turn to Haggai 1. You know, it's funny, the Bible isn't laid out uh, the way that the books are. They're not laid out in chronological order. So, you know, you can Google chronological order of the books of the Bible, and if you find a good one, it'll show you, like, the timelines. I just love that because I love to be able to, to read it in, in the sequence in which it happened. I say that because I'm giving you time to hop around because <laughs> Zechariah and Haggai and Ezra and I think uh, Ezra and Nehemiah uh, are up higher or, uh, you know, earlier in the Bible. But, um, all right, Haggai 1, verse 9. Now, this whole chapter is, is Haggai kind of giving Zerubbabel and Joshua a hard time. But he says, you looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that is in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. And there's some other sharp words that go along with that. But basically he's saying, look, you have to build the house of the Lord first. You have to build this. For us, it's the dwelling place of God and the Spirit that we have to prioritize that above everything else, that we would steward and host his presence like every day. Like if I go out and I've got something else in my temple, I am going to damage somebody. I don't want to damage anybody. I'm going to mess up this assignment that I'm on and thank God for grace. And that's what we're about to get to is that Every place like that, it's grace that covers us. It's grace that propels us and moves us on. But we do need sometimes to take an honest look and go, yep, got that hanging around. Yep, got that one wrong. Noted, Lord, I repent. I mean, repentance is not a popular message anymore, but it's still a daily necessary thing. Repentance just means to go, oh, you're right, I'm wrong. 
I'll change, I'll change that. I can adjust that. Making adjustments. How's that? Is that more palatable? Making adjustments according to the word of the Lord. Ha. We need the prophetic. The prophetic helps us with that. Sometimes, you know, uh, somebody will have a prophetic word and it, it, it hurts a little bit. But uh, it's supposed to be encouragement, edification, and exhortation. But sometimes it can sound like, hey, you need to clean up the house. You know, you got undergarments laying on the fan, that sort of thing. Let's get it cleaned up in here. All right. We need prophets to see our true identity and purpose. Zechariah, back to Zechariah. I should have told you to leave a thumb there. Zechariah 4, again, 6 through 10. And this is, the, this is kind of the text. So he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. You know what? I, I just have to briefly share what this is, the context of this. He has a vision and he has a vision basically of a lampstand with uh, seven branches on it. And there's two olive trees standing next to the lampstand and they're dripping oil and there's a bowl on top. And I don't want to get into all the, the symbolism of that. But I believe that it is the, the covenant people of God, one olive tree, and the renewed people of God in Christ that come together. We're, we're called to be the light to the world. And Jesus Christ, the bowl that, that is on top, that there's still a covenant that he has with the children of Israel. We're grafted in. He goes along and says something like, Behold, I'm bringing forth the branch. And that's the, 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 talking about grafting us in. Anyways, that's the, the context of this. So it's very messianic. All of this is messianic. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. And he says, well, what am I looking at? I'm looking at two olive trees and two lampstands here. What am I looking at? And he says, you don't know what you're looking at? No, I really don't. I mean, what is that? He says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Prophesying about this new thing that God's going to do in Christ to bring the church. All right. Ha. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also finish it. I'm the first and the last. Ah. Alpha and the Omega. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, for who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. So a couple of things about this passage here. He's basically saying that Zerubbabel has started this thing and he's going to finish this thing. He says he's bringing out the capstone, which is like the last stone. It's like the finishing touch to the building. With shouts of grace, grace to this mountain. Grace, grace to it. That the work of the Lord is saturated in grace. He starts in grace, he finishes in grace. He says that who's despised the days of small beginnings? You know, we talk about this. That the battle has already been won. The victory has already been won. That he sees the end from the beginning. And that's what's going on here. The plumb line is the very first thing that you do. And 
from the day of the plumb line, he's already seeing the capstone being laid. That these seven, the spirits of God, and I don't have time to get into all that, but rejoice seeing the plumb line, seeing the start. Who's despised the start? In other words, no matter where you're at right now in your following the Lord in, the, in his plan and his calling in your life, it's not to be despised because God sees the end of it and he's declaring grace over every step, over every mountain, over every obstacle, over every frustration and confusion. He's saying grace that you, he is faithful to complete what he started in your life. Amen? Hallelujah. The plumb line is the very first thing that you do. You know, the, the very first day that I uh, took over as a pastor of this church, transitioned as a pastor, I spoke a quick message about evangelism, about a generosity and evangelism reaching your community, and then I turned it loose for people to prophesy and to give the word of the Lord and to exercise the gifts. And the most significant word that came forth that night was somebody that said, I see a rope, and the rope is on fire, and it's like it's coming down out of heaven, and it's got a rock attached to it. I have no idea what that means, but that was a word that the Lord spoke over us in the beginning. That our plumb line is on fire. <laughs> that that is what we have been, the, capst- the, uh, the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. That's the, okay. The plumb line is there because gravity actually holds it straight. And if you don't take the cornerstone and set it in place according to how the plumb is hanging, it won't be straight, even though it looks straight. So we're using gravity and the force of, of the earth to actually determine what straight up north is, okay? Does that make sense? That's what a plumb line is. So the weight holds it down and shows you, right? So you set the, somebody could stand there and the other person can line it up with that stone. Because if the first stone isn't laid square, then as you go, they all start getting like this and you build a building. By the time you get five or six stories, the whole thing doo, topples, okay? And that's why Paul warns us to say, be careful how you build on it. And he talks about wood, hay, and stubble, gold, and silver. That we're all building this building, but be careful how you build on it. Because the cornerstone is Jesus Christ, and the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. Okay. We're building the house on the inside, amen? But you don't have to build alone. We've got the prophetic. We've got the evangelist. We've got this pastor going to love on you. We've got the teacher that's going to teach you some stuff about the word. And the spirit of God, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The spirit of the Lord has given us the right to operate in the kingdom where Jesus reigns. I am wrapping up, believe it or not, where he is already won. I saw a quote the other day. said, we battle from victory, not to victory. Weren't we talking about that this morning, Linda? We battle from victory, the victory of Jesus. It's already a settled deal. We don't have to try to get heaven to come down to where we're at. We are actually there, seated in Christ in heavenly places, and we warfare from that place, from a place of victory. The battle is, is not ours to win, Okay? Because it's already been won. It's the enemies to lose. Graham Cook. (laughs) 
uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, uh, says that Jesus Christ is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Matter of fact, I think if you back it up, it says that uh, we're all partakers of this heavenly calling. Do you realize that Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession? He's our confession. But that actually as we testify and, and confess his name and as we declare the word of the Lord, that that's his orders. He's taking that before the throne of God and saying, yes, sir. Hot off the press. Once we know who we are and why we're here, the rest of it's all grace. I see, I see the, the temptation of the enemy to get us to mix. I see the temptation of the enemy to get us to be frustrated and to get uh, discouraged and depressed and to give up. And today, we're going to do an exercise. So why don't everybody, everybody just stand up? We're, I'm finishing up right here. Like Zerubbabel and Joshua, I think we get our foundation built, and then adversity comes, and we just get stuck. I'm here to tell you today that you're not stuck. You're not stuck. We don't have to wait for 14 years to get going again. We have a higher authority in heaven. We have orders from the king. And we can take those orders from the king and declare it and keep on building. So grace is not gloss. You need to hear this. So we're about to talk about grace, but grace is not gloss. We are saved by grace, this this favor of God that's unmerited. But grace through faith, grace is the enabling power of the Holy Spirit to enable you with his power to become all that he's created and redeemed you to be, for you to fulfill his calling, for you to carry out what he's called you to do. Does that make sense? That's what grace actually means. Grace is explosive power. Huh. God is saying to us today, we're taking off the dirty robes and we're giving you royal robes and we're putting a fresh turban on your head like he said to Joshua. You have been completely cleansed. Of your iniquities. Hallelujah. So it's time to get past the mountains and build. Grace is not a whisper. Shouts of grace, grace to it. Grace is a battle cry. Is anybody willing to do that today? To just shout grace over these areas of your life? Lay a hand on your neighbor. We're going to say the word grace a whole bunch, but I want you to say it with some vitriol. If you want to shout and scream, (laughs) I think it's appropriate. It's okay. But don't damage anybody's eardrum, okay? But right now, in the name of Jesus, I just speak grace to that mountain. Grace, grace to to fear. We just take the spirit of fear and we say grace, grace to it in Jesus' name. The fear of man. Grace to it. Grace to it. To discouragement. Right now, the spirit of discouragement, that ball that is in your stomach of just having endured and about to give up, we speak grace to it right now in the name of Jesus. Grace to that discouragement in the name of Jesus. I break discouragement off of you in Jesus' mighty name. Disappointment. 
for everything that you thought was going to happen that didn't happen. Right now, I speak grace to it. Grace to your disappointment. God is greater. He has a bigger plan for you. Grace, grace to it. Grace to it. Hallelujah. I just infuse hope into you. I bless you with hope that hope would stir up once again in your lives. For every place where the enemy has brought up your past and brought up mistakes, we say grace over those mistakes right now. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He purifies you and cleanses you right now in Jesus' name. That is not an obstacle. We say grace to that mountain. Grace, grace, grace. Temptations. Right now we speak grace to temptations. Temptations that make you break out in a cold sweat at night to get you to falter and to compromise what God has asked you to do. We just say grace over that. You are forgiven in Jesus' name. Grace, grace, grace. Hallelujah, I receive it. To our cowardice. In the book of Revelations, it said cowards won't enter the kingdom. Lord, we just give up cowardice right now. We speak to that thing, and that is not from God. We say grace, grace, grace over that. We thank you for boldness in the name of Jesus. I release boldness over you in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. You will be bold witnesses to Judea and Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. Hallelujah. And to the accuser, to the mountain that is the accuser that would make up stories about you and slander you. We just say grace over them. For every person that's done that, Lord, we say grace. Holy Spirit, hound of heaven, go get them in Jesus' name. But we say grace over that. Grace, grace, grace. Hallelujah. Woo. Frustration. Does anybody, anybody just get a pit of frustration if just stuff's not working out? Lord, we speak to that frustration and we say grace. Grace, grace, grace. No more frustration in Jesus' name. Lord, we see that you are, your hand is on every last bit of our lives, God, that you have orchestrated our lives. Lord, we choose not to be frustrated, but to bless that place in our hearts with grace. Wash over them. Lord, I just bless you guys with grace. Hallelujah. One more. Anything else that's stopping you from fulfilling your purpose, any obstacle, it could be a toilet, it could be a boat and a car. And Lord, we just speak the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you are the overcoming one. We say grace over it, Lord. You are the overcoming one. Relationships, Lord, difficult things that we have no answer for, God. We just receive your grace. We receive your grace, God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Bless God. Thank you for listening to the Consumed Church weekly podcast. This entire service and others can be viewed on our Facebook and YouTube channels. If you would like to partner with us in raising the next generation of kingdom bringers, you can do so at theconsumedchurch.com slash give.